0: We're at Bingham Falls in Smuggler's Notch State Park.
1: And is that part of Mount Mansfield State Forest? Exactly. You're listening to Happy Vermont, a travel podcast about people and places in the Green Mountain State. Mike Snyder is the Commissioner of Forest Parks and Recreation for the state of Vermont. He's a forester and an avid outdoorsman, and he loves Vermont. We recently caught up in Stowe, where we sat in a forested area surrounded by hemlocks near Bingham Falls off Route 108. In this episode, Mike talks about how the foliage season is shaping up and the future of Vermont's forests. He also shares where you can find the most maple trees in Vermont. Here's Mike.
0: It's really more, I might characterize it as they're everywhere, almost everywhere in Vermont. They're really distributed throughout the state, you know, except at the highest elevations where they kind of drop out. But... He's more accurately characterized as like saying they're everywhere except where they're not, and that's pretty limited. So the spine of the Green Mountains, the upper flanks of the Green Mountains, for example, fewer, fewer sugar maples in that mix, right? But otherwise they're in the Champlain Valley, they're in the Northern Highlands, they're uh, in the Piedmont, they're in the Taconic Valley, they're all across the Southern tier of the state. So they're everywhere except really localized places at higher elevations in particular where they drop out of the mix. And then there's, I just have to make reference to kind of this, I might call the planetary epicenter of sugar maple, which is in Orange County, Vermont, pr- principally. Again, owing to that Waits River formation, the geologic sort of underpinning that drives so much of the ecology of the area. It just, sugar maples happen there and they happen in a glorious way. They grow well, they do well, they're healthy. We've had them; people taking good care of them for a long time in a lot of different ways. They regenerate there. So there's young, middle-aged, old trees. Again, you you argue it's like the... Planetary epicenter of sugar maple.
1: I've never heard that before. That's I so just made it up. Oh,
0: But I mean, Perfect. calling it that, but it's the kind of extent, the in- amount, the the intensity, the height, the quality of sugar maple in that region of sort of central eastern Vermont is it's well known and understood as being foresters especially, you know, we we look at it with, with pride, with envy. It's just a really good place for sugar maple in particular.
1: Now, talking about the sugar maple, it's the Vermont state tree. And then I was reading online about sugar maples, and I read that Michigan has more than three times the amount of sugar maple trees as Vermont. Granted, Michigan is a bigger state, more landmass. And so Vermont doesn't have the most sugar maple trees, but We're certainly known for sugar maple trees. We're the largest producer of maple syrup in the United States. What does a sugar maple need to really thrive? Like, what are we doing? We must be doing something right here because these trees are pretty much everywhere and Mm -hmm. thriving in certain areas.
0: Right. Well, the geographic range of sugar maple as a species, that's what we call kind of the geographic extent, the map of sugar maple. Where does it exist in North America? It's, you know, from the Maritimes out to the upper Midwest and then down, you know, the Mississippi Valley east of and down uh, sugar maple. I, I believe there's maybe some disjunct populations in Florida and Georgia. So, you know, but that's not where they grow, where they, they have existed there. I think I, I should look it up, but I'm pretty sure it goes if not to Florida, pretty darn close, there's the existence of sugar maple as a species, individuals here and there. But no one would say, well, that's where they're doing their thing. It's right. It's But it is throughout the Appalachians, up into the upper Midwest, and across New England into the Maritimes. And so it's a common species in eastern North America. And it's beautiful and, and wonderful everywhere sugaring, maple sugaring, that, you know, isn't going to happen in Florida because they don't have the freezing and and warmth and the kind of the weather conditions in particular, the seasons and weather that we have. So that would explain the sort of reduced area of sugar maple where maple sugar is produced is really because of the weather conditions that are required for the unique physiology of sugar maples to kick in and allow us to do that. I think beyond that, it's arguable and it comes down to like, so it's more about the kind of quality within forest abundance. So it exists in these places, but nowhere does it exist at a higher abundance and concentration in the mix as it does in Vermont, New Hampshire, Northern New York will give us a run for that in certain places. But then it's down to like sort of the the quality, the health. And I think we're in this thing, if you think about that geographic range, we're you know, on the northern side of the middle of it. We're not at the either end. And so it makes some sense that given, remember, trees are genetically varied among the most, maybe the most genetically variable organisms on the planet. They have to be because they have to be built for change over centuries and they can't move and they have to deal. And so they're equipped to deal with a range of conditions and we have a range of conditions, but it kind of the sweet spot. It's not the worst of cold or drought or wet. It's kind of in the middle of the range of conditions that it needs to grow. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think then
0: the geology and the soils, they're uniquely adapted to and do do very well here. So they, they grow strong and big and they look great. That's not to say Michigan doesn't have some good-looking maple trees. They don't. Nothing
1: against Michigan. But I don't think of sugar maples when I think of Michigan. Right.
0: But that's the thing is just remember, zooming out, it, it does exist in a wide swath of North, eastern North America and as a species. But it's concentrated in New England, northern New York. But even as you go east, you know, it drops out. It's not as abundant in New Hampshire, certainly not in in Maine, where pine would start to emerge as a much bigger pine and oak types, as opposed to beech birch maple forest, the so-called northern hardwoods that we have. Similarly, in the upper Midwest, it's central hardwoods. It's a different admixture of species, you know, doing it in association with sugar maple. We have the classic beech birch maple, northern hardwood,
1: So we're not quite there yet, but foliage is coming up quickly. Can you talk about how the foliage season is shaping up for 2022? And does it look like we're going to have a colorful season?
0: Short answer, yes. It looks good for another great fall foliage season in Vermont. And that's based on what we do at the Department of Forest Parks and Recreation, our forestry staff and our forest health professionals kind of monitoring the condition of our forests all year. So we, for foliage or not, we're paying attention. And what we know is it's been a reasonably good growing year. And that's really the first ingredient for any foliage season is, well, how'd the trees do this summer? The trees have largely done their part, despite some challenges we could speak to. But those challenges aside, I think the trees are ready. Start, you can tell they they cue into the shortening day length. We're starting to see just the very earliest nuance of change in the forest canopy where color is concerned fading green, emergence of some yellows, spots of red and orange where stress trees have already emerged. But now we just wait for the last set of ingredients, which is really the in season, the fall weather uh, that really drives the timing of color development, the duration, the intensity, and the varieties. So we're in a good place. It's shaping up, all things are in place. I should speak to the stresses maybe that have existed. Yeah, absolutely. That would be notably drought. We have a small portion in Southern Vermont, Southeast Vermont, that's said to be in a severe drought condition. And severe drought is a real problem for trees. Like they're really tough and they're built to put up with things, including drought stress. But scorched leaves and severe drought can lead to death of leaves, browning, dying, You know, scorched leaves, they're not going to turn pretty colors. And there's a certain proportion of those. Every year, we have some part of the state that's in that condition. Much of the state then is otherwise in moderate drought or abnormally dry conditions, according to the people who track this stuff. And we, people who track forest health and tree physiology, know that Again, severe drought, bad for trees, bad for color development. Moderate drought, abnormally dry, can actually enhance color development. It's certainly consistent with great foliage season, other things panning out appropriately. So that's where we stand with with drought stress. We also know that that people would know, many experienced a few years now of outbreak of spongy moth caterpillars, the insect formerly known as gypsy moth that defoliates hardwood trees and did so with great vigor this summer again in particularly on the western side of the state in the champlain valley especially and so you know chewed up leaves aren't going to turn colors but what's really interesting about that insect is that it's a early season defoliator which means again give it up for these trees there's most of those trees can reflush a new set of leaves later in the summer And those leaves can turn nice colors. Some of those trees, some of those areas have trees that have been defoliated like this for a couple of three years. You mix in some extra drought. That's what we think of as compounding stresses. And trees are really good at putting up with stress, but when you have compounding stressors, that's when trees kind of give up the ghost a little bit, and it can lead to certainly declines in growth. That's going to happen anyway. Other health issues and mortality die back in the canopy. So in those areas, you can definitely count on some trees, you know, having, you know, bare spots in the canopy or premature leaf drop. So as an example of insect, that's a non-native insect, out of balance and overwhelming certain areas in particular. The upside is that whereas some years we have really wet springs that's conducive to leaf Diseases, fungi in particular that live on the leaves and turn them black and dusky and brown. And we had relatively low incidence of, say, anthracnose fungus this summer, one of the main culprits this early spring and summer. So we don't see a lot of a lot of that. You know, it's there's some mortality disease in in every healthy forest, and and that's always been the case, even in the most spectacular color years. But so those would be the main stress agents that we're watching, and will have an impact in localized kind of occurrences of diminished color, maybe earlier color, et cetera, and some bare spots. But overall, forest health is good. Things are in a good shape for the trees to do their thing over the next, we're here in early September. And, you know, pay attention because it can happen really fast. It's really cool how it happens. But that's where we are. Question, you know, how is it shaping up? I'd say it's shaping up great.
1: Yeah, that's great. Now, of course, we know we live here in Vermont. We know that fall season is very special. Compared to other places, what do you think makes Vermont's foliage so spectacular, so beautiful?
0: You mean the best? The best. What what makes it the, 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 the the world's best? Yes, as we like to say. And it's a fun rivalry we have with friendly states around us who also have great fall foliage. But we do make a claim for mostly out of fun, and why not, that we do have the world's best foliage. And it's a credible claim. And I'm happy to explain why I feel that way. Which is to say, you know, kind of, we have a variety of tree species that make that turn colors. Great variety, dominated, of course, by the maples. One in every four tree in our four trees in our state is a maple. Red maples and sugar maples, in particular, kind of the show stealers every year. We have a great abundance of them. Some states are bigger, may have more trees, but. We have the highest proportion of our trees in ready to turn great colors. But it's not just the maples, right? So, and I'd, you know, we're sitting here in, in a hemlock stand, <laughs> a stand dominated by hemlocks and spruce that are evergreens. And let's give it up for them. They're actually in the mix, they provide that contrast and kind of a framing and backdrop for the color development from the broadleaf, the hardwood deciduous trees. And so, everything from maples to a variety of conifers or evergreens, everything in between begins with variety. I think. Also, because of our unique, regionally unique geology and weather conditions, we have a higher degree of vibrancy, I would argue, in the color and intensity and development. Because of our relatively sweet soils, calcareous soils, particularly in certain parts of the state, the, the eastern flanks of the Green Mountains and the Piedmont into the Connecticut Valley, for example, forest ecology driven by those calcareous soils that translates, I think, into leaf chemistry and in a really positive way for us. So variety, vibrancy. I also mention vantage points because we have, there's just so many ways to enjoy fall foliage in Vermont, which is actually stunning given how relatively small we are. But whether you just want to drive the byways and highways, and that's spectacular, or to get out in boots, on a bike, in a boat, in the woods, on the waters, rolling through a world-class single track, and pausing now and then to just see the colors whirring by that you're zooming past. Like, there's so many ways. And I haven't even mentioned, like, the variety of colors, the vibrancy and sort of chemistry of it all, the vantage points that go from mountains and topography to developed, you know, classic Vermont villages and river valleys and farms. It's a great package. I'll give it up to Maine for the lobsters every time, but I'm claiming the foliage for Vermont. All right.
1: That sounds fair. I was on the internet, and I recently read about this Vermont Big Tree Program, which is this database of big trees across the state. And you can totally geek out on that, just diving in and looking at all sorts of things. And the Big Tree Program was this initiative started by a Castleton State College professor in the 70s. And the program evolved in the 80s and 90s, and then it went dormant, I think, in 2003 or so. But it recently... Started up again last year, and that was with the Vermont Urban and Community Forestry Program and the Vermont Agency of Natural Resources, which you're part of. So, I read on there that the largest sugar maple is in Westminster, Vermont, and it stands at 83 feet tall and has a circumference of 249 inches. So, does its size mean that it's like a really old tree?
0: So much here. This is great. (laughs) Right. Appreciate you seeing the big tree program. Uh, We used to call them champion trees. The biggest known, measured, verified occurrence of of an individual of every species. So you can have the biggest, there's the, 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 the champion sugar maple, the champion red maple, there's can be the champion striped maple. That was uh, a work that we took on as part of the department and I used to be a county forester, a service forester, and that was a, one of the roles we played, was going out and keeping track of the big trees. I had the biggest tree in Vermont in my county for a time. It was a cottonwood in Colchester, which was really fun to measure and then verify and and claim the biggest tree of all the trees in Vermont, and then yes, it's sort of when it just evolved over time, and maybe dormant is probably a decent word for it. I, th- I don't know that it was gone, but it was less vigorous. But then the Urban and Community Forestry Program, which is a program of the Department of Forest Parks and Recreation, oh, I didn't know that. Yes, okay. uh, we're very proud of our urban community folks who do a great job in so many ways. A sugar maple, say the the big one that you read about. Is that you know? First of all, I should explain it's not the tallest tree Uh it's not the broadest tree by convention and agreement it's sort of a protocol is it's an accumulation of three measurements it is the height of the tree to the tallest point plus they use circumference which is the distance around the trunk of the tree at four and a half feet above the ground so the, the girth of the tree and then the crown spread we measure from one edge of the crown of the tree to the other edge two ways across and then get an average crown spread and so those three scores make up the big you know you combine those to to rank the size of the tree so just to be clear big trees or champion trees are not for any species are not uh it's not just one the height or breadth it's this combination okay so is the champion sugar maple tree really old it's an awesome question because it allows us to talk a little bit more about trees and a little bit more deeply. That is like maybe (laughs) one of our favorite answers because you grow some every year. So the longer you live, the bigger you're going to get, presumably. But then again, old trees grow at a slower rate and continue to slow their rate of growth. But it also more, maybe more importantly, the size of any tree, particularly a champion tree that needs to have a big crown spread, the height is really driven by soil conditions, moisture, soil fertility, and the diameter of the tree, the circumference or the crown spread are also affected, of course, by soil conditions, but they're heavily influenced by competition from other trees. And so the, where the tree grew matters here. So a giant tree that grew in its entire life out in, the, in a pasture and the same size tree... That grew in a forest. Which one's older, do you think? I'm gonna go the one in the forest because, in order to get that big, it took a really long time because of all the competition. Whereas an open grown tree can attain giant size faster without competition. Making sense? Yes. Okay. So, this sort of background on like, kind of like elephants, right? Just because it's big doesn't mean it's old. Like, maybe elephants are pretty big. So, I don't know if that works. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Kinda>. <laughs> so like here, great example, hemlocks are known for being shade tolerant and be able to just persist in the understory and, and then wait their turn and, and actually make use of a little bit of light f- efficiently. That is a unique strategy that very few tree species have. So that hemlock I'm pointing to across the way that's about eight inches in diameter is probably older than A yellow birch down the way here in an opening that's twice as big in diameter because it just grows more slowly. So, hemlocks, I've seen hemlocks that are six inches in diameter that are, you know, 150 years old. It's like to the point you have to sand and use a microscope to see the rings to count them. Whereas, you know, there are plenty of trees much bigger than that that are like 40 years old. Wow. Right. So this growth rate thing varies by species, and that relates to how big is it at a certain age. Depends on the growth rate, that depends on species, and it depends on localized growing conditions and competition, how dense is the vegetation surrounding the tree. Okay, wow. So I repeat, it depends.
1: (laughs) Okay, good answer. (laughs) Okay, so the tree in Westminster where the largest sugar maple is, that tree is on private property. You and I have talked about this before on this podcast, and it's something that I I think about a lot, is that nearly 80 percent of Vermont's forests, or 3.5 million acres, I believe, are not owned by the state of Vermont or the federal government, but by private landowners, which is a really interesting fact.
0: It is a fact.
1: Yes. Three
0: quarters of our state is forested, and 80 plus percent of that forest land is privately owned mostly by family forest, individual sort of family forest owners. So not government, federal or state or town, although we have federal, state, and town forests in in our state. And the private land includes some commercial sort of industrial ownership, but that's in Vermont, whereas in, say, Maine, for example, that's a big proportion of the land is owned privately, but by sort of commercial entities. Vermont's is largely owned by just Vermonters, which... It's not better, or it's just it's just another bit of information about sort of the demographics of ownership, which is important. Right. Yeah. So it's largely privately owned. It's definitely unique compared to the West, where it's reversed. Most of the land is publicly owned. In the East, this is common. And in the Northeast, Vermont has the highest proportion of family owners, I think, is how I would say it, as opposed to other private owners.
1: Got it. Okay. I know there are things that the state of Vermont and other organizations are doing to protect the forests and for future generations, you know, working with landowners maybe on succession plans, things like that. Are things like that happening?
0: Yes. So that's it's been identified that given that forests are really important, confer all kinds of, you know, kind of public benefits. I think carbon sequestration and storage recently becoming aware of its importance air quality in general, water supply, water quality, flood resilience, biodiversity, connectivity, habitat, outdoor recreation. like So it starts with this recognition that forests are really good. And then following a recognition of your point that, wow, it's mostly privately owned. What does that mean? Well, it means it's kind of vulnerable to the whims of people being people and No, you know, that's an okay thing. But it suggests if we want to continue the benefits that forests provide, we ought to think about who owns it, what are their interests, how do we incentivize people keeping forest land as forest land? And that's where, say, current use comes in as a policy initiative, which is property tax fairness to people who aren't developing their land but keeping it in forestry or farming. So you pay a much reduced property tax if you qualify and follow the rules of the program. As a state kind of policy saying let's support private landowners because they keep forests, forest. Further, as we've seen for the first time in a hundred years recently, a measured sort of loss in forest area, we've been aggrading, we've been expanding the amount of forest land in the state for you know over a hundred years. But now, owing to many different pressures, conversion to non-forest development of various types, we're seeing a loss of forest land. And Many of us have signaled that that's worth paying attention to. It's not an immediate emergency. I'm looking around. This guide is not falling, but we ought to pay attention. And that led us to think, many of us, like, what what are the ways to support private ownership of forest lands to continue these benefits that we all enjoy? And one of the principal suggestions that came out of that work was... A succession planning, as you put it, is Many forest land parcels are owned by families, and it's not hard to imagine a scenario where it's really about the home, where the family did its thing and then have this land, and then the kids grow up and move away and take jobs elsewhere, and mom and dad are there, and at the end of their time there, it's, well, how do we give value and equity to the family that no one can is in a position to come back and be here? So often it gets subdivided and Either everybody gets a piece or everybody gets proceeds because you kind of cash out. Again, that's understandable and it's common. And so the thought was maybe... We could have conversations with people. They could learn their options for continuing their land beyond their ownership tenure. That's the idea of succession planning. And what are the sort of tax implications and what are the, what are the options? So we've done a lot of work and kind of everything from sort of a toolkit and information guidance and webinars and helping our county foresters. Learn how to help people with these kind of decisions, which is basically planning for the end of your ownership and how do you want your land to continue. So that can take a lot of forms: enrolling in current use, invoking a, a conservation easement to you know limit development and keep it in forest, and helping people in a variety of other mechanisms. Helping people explore those avenues for the next ownership to keep it to continue it in forest land. So that's the basic idea of succession planning, and it's a fundamental policy suggestion and initiative now aimed at keeping forests forest and continuing the benefits that forests provide, despite in kind of the vagaries of private ownership and the uncertainties that come with that.
1: Very generally. Do many landowners want to keep their land forested? I mean... I don't know if there's a way to answer that,
0: but... Right, because, you know, don't know all the Vermonters yet, working on it. No, I think, but we do have some sense of this. There's also a really cool program of the USDA Forest Service where in the Northeast region, there's a researcher, his name's Brett Butler, who's does a lot of work in forest ownership and demographics, and uh, he does the Woodland Owners Survey, which you know, is a statistically sound, rigorous approach to kind of gauging sentiment and attitude of forest landowners on a repeated basis. And it's really interesting, you know, kind of why do you own forest land? And for many, it's it's just kind of came with the house, sort of accidental owners, if you will, which we should come back to. But then it's uh, privacy. It's recreation. It's wildlife habitat. And you go a long way, and there's a lot of reasons people own land. It, and it includes, you know, periodic income from timber, though that's historically always been ranked lower. No, that's what people say. But many of them, when they engage in some sort of timber harvest and, and forest management, that's in, enormously satisfying to them. And most will admit they also do like the periodic income. But anyway, the idea is that over some time now, we've sort of had these recurring snapshots of attitudes and sentiments and goals and values of woodland owners not to suggest it's monolithic but to get a sense of the diversity of opinions and attitudes and who own what's the profile of these owners and we've learned a lot and i think it helps us you know reach out how meet people where they're at and that's always the most powerful way to to, to inter- interact with people and so i think for many we know there's this range of reasons for owning and my sense in my 30 plus years being a forester in vermont and engaging with listening to Vermonters and woodland owners is that I think more and more of them, my sense is, do want to ensure it has a future as a forest, whether they're there or not. Very successful community of land trust professionals and practitioners helping landowners kind of do that legal permanence and protection in a variety of ways that kind of allow them to have options. That's a mature system now at this point, and Vermont's a leader in that kind of land conservation. In addition, there's many other kinds of land conservation, actively working with the land, engaging with biologists and foresters and getting guidance and support for work and practices, improving the land. And I think through all of this and the emergence of the importance of forests in the climate change and biodiversity context, people are more and more aware of the power and value of their forests and want to make sure that it's going to continue to do that. And that's a really great thing.
1: Right. Going back to the accidental ownership that you mentioned before.
0: Well, just this notion that it's real. It's not everybody, many intentional owners, many. And then many accidental owners become intentional owners when they're like, oh my God, it came with a hundred acres of this? This is amazing. Learning about it, engaging with it. And that's like real magic, particularly for a county forester to see and help that happen. I think it also raises this really interesting issue is that, you know, for most people, buying a house and some land is like the biggest thing you're ever gonna do financially. And yet it's kind of a crapshoot, if you will. Like think about you buy, I don't know, a toaster, you get a you get a what? An owner's manual, right? Whatever. But you buy a hunk of Vermont and you get nothing. Good luck. So we've actually tried and fits and starts over a really long period of time to create the kind of the Vermont Woodland Owners Manual. Fish and Wildlife Department years ago had a really cool program, is kind of a, a welcome bucket, which was a sap bucket filled with some resources and information and guidance to get you started and who to contact. And so we're moving in that direction. With we have staff who've engaged with real estate agents to like here's current use 101, so you can advise people a little bit more with a bit more information and and just what's possible. You know, there's maybe not so many responsibilities, like legal, but there's a lot of possibilities and options. And I'm particularly big on empowering people with through their options and helping them understand what their options are and let them make the good choices. So we've been really pushing towards making people aware what's at stake with a piece of forest land, what your options are, and just how glorious it is to engage with that ownership. Yeah, I think the accidental ownership thing is kind of like, it's helpful to understand the it goes to the reasons, and but also it raises this question about like, well, if people are not necessarily intentionally coming into this ownership, how do we meet them where they are to help them explore those possibilities? And that's where this sort of owner's manual idea keeps, it keeps vexing me like, we need to do that. I think it's also important in that same kind of vein with some of the same words, it's like, then again, this glorious forested landscape, I like to say we're forest strong because of the benefits that so much forest land and the condition it's in uh, conferred to us is no accident. Some people own land somewhat by accident, if you will, to make that point, but this landscape is not accidental. It's And that's an important thing for us to remember and, and not take for granted that it just happens automatically and it's guaranteed. It's not, it's here because people own it, largely private landowners or in public ownership where it's been intentional to say, this should be for the public and we have to have professionals take care of it. So it's not an accident. It's there because of hard work, sacrifice, choices that landowners in particular have made, and then stewarded the places in concert, usually with professionals, a forester, our other biologist, logging contractors, etc., to help them hold on to it. And nothing about that is accidental. And as we make the point about accidental ownership in some cases, we should also make the point that as we tour the state and enjoy the foliage season, we recognize that it's there's a reason it's here. It's a little bit complicated, but it's a beautiful story. And we want to ensure that that story can continue. And so it really is an understanding of who owns it, private Vermonters and that they have pressures on their ownership and that we need to support their ownership. Be grateful for it. Understand that largely it's been kept here and we have this amazing diversity of species and conditions owing to good forest management over a few generations now and particularly last half century of just excellent stewardship. So again, none of that's accidental and that's just an additional point to make about all this. is like, let's remember that it's it's not accidental, automatic or guaranteed.
1: Right, right. It got me thinking, too, when I I grew up in Manchester, and for my father, he ran a sawmill in New York State, and then we moved to Vermont in 1979, and we bought...
0: Sawdust in your blood.
1: Sawdust is in my blood. And we bought this old house in Manchester and had 200 acres, and that 200 acres is still intact today. Like, my parents sold it when they got divorced in the 80s, but now it's owned by Earth Sky Time, which is a local farm and bakery down in Southern Vermont. But it makes me so happy that that land is still there. It's incredible. And my dad
0: would be happy too. Yeah. That's a great story. And I'm glad to hear it. You should be proud of that and thrilled that it continues forever. And just think about how many people have enjoyed it, whether it's a backdrop to some scene or a playground for somebody or the wood products have come from there and that have enriched people's lives and their homes. It's just like cherished furniture that gets passed on from general. That's trees, man. That And somebody made it happen. Lots of people. And that's just really cool to know that your family experienced it. It mattered to you. And now it matters to others. And you can feel good knowing that it's still there doing that. It's super.
1: That got me thinking too. When these landowners, I'm sure the acreage varies, but is there kind of a minimum ownership of acres? Like if someone has 10 acres, like do they need to, are you talking to them or is our land trust talking to them about, you know, conservation and all that? Or is it like the big hundreds of acres
0: it's folks that you're talking to? All of the above. Okay. But it includes, so just as a kind of level set, we've mentioned current use, the tax abatement program. It's based on a minimum of 25 contiguous acres of forest land. And that was chosen intentionally as kind of a, a raw number of like the baseline for active forest management to make sense and all. I think that's fair. That said, many forest inventories with our partners at the Forest Service, for example, kind of use 10 acres as a logical cutoff for sort of the, you know, that's the smallest unit of forest that's kind of functioning as forest and, and all that. So those are two benchmarks. I would say, though, having been the Chittenden County Forester in our most populous county, working with all kinds of landowners, they somebody in Winooski that doesn't even have a tree, but they want a tree, <laughs> we'll, get, we'll work with them. That's nice. Right? Provides, yeah, guidance and expertise on which tree, where, and how to take good care of it and make it last. So it's everybody. If you have interest, that's who we engage with. We tend to target the, you know, the 10 acres and up as sort of more likely. With regard to permanence and protection, it's often been focused on bigger tracts, but not always. So in the tens of acres, you know, 30, 40, 50 acres. And then I think the point was, would be now, it's less about how many acres and which acres and where and what do they connect to and what are they comprised of. So that's where our strategic Vermont conservation design comes in. It's an agency heavily driven by fish and wildlife, but input from our staff as well. This kind of natural ecological function kind of lens of the lands, looking for at the landscape towards ecological f- function. And that's what we want is a f- ecologically functional and healthy and intact landscape that's connected and functional. That's the baseline. And we have targets based on geology and natural community types and distribution and condition and health of how to hold it all together in this functional whole as opposed to randomly reacting to conservation opportunities and a few acres here and a bunch of acres over there. That's sort of the guide now, really kind of a cool strategic basis for what are the most impactful forest land parcels to be kept in forest land. You know, it's not gonna all be kept in forest land and we need to accept that. And so we have multiple strategies through permanent protection, through engagement with landowners and active stewardship and quite a continuum. In that mix, it really needs to contemplate stewardship and conservation of all sizes of parcels. And more and more we're thinking about which ones where and what their kind of key contribution to mm. the landscape is.
1: hmm Okay. That's a good answer. Good. <laughs> I got
0: one in. I got one good answer. Excellent.
1: (laughs) I have no land. I have like one tree. Are there things, people like me who don't have land, but but we're interested in forest health and protecting the forest for future generations? What can someone like me do?
0: Build on that for starters. So help others get to that place where you don't have forest, you don't live in forest, but you are aware of their importance. So help continue that. And I would say, Anyone in that category, one of the first things you should do is spread that. Then what is that? Well, love for the public lands and appreciation that we're lucky to have some 400,000 acres of national forest, a little less than that in state forest and state park lands and wildlife management areas, but about you know pushing 400,000 acres there. And a wonderful array of town forests and community forests with lots of different compositions and purposes. So embrace the public lands and value them, and then really respect and, and honor this that, the, as you've pointed out, astutely, most of it's privately owned. You know, I like to think of fall foliage in particular as a time of year where it should be, should be an annual reminder to us all of how lucky we are. It's beautiful, and it's really driven largely by people keeping that forest forest private landowners, as you've talked about. So it really is the dominant. Type And so honor that. And when we celebrate fall foliage, let's remember to sort of thank the forest landowners who pay the taxes and made choices to keep it in trees and support that into the future. So support policies that support this, like current use, conservation programs, and then understand, I think, you know, what you can also do is just understand, you know, some of the things that are not well understood and easy to take for granted which starts with taking for granted that we're this magical green place that bursts forward with multicolors in the fall. But beyond that, it's like, well, how did it get that way? Private landowners, largely through active stewardship, forest management, turning trees into useful products in our daily lives, locally, intelligently, and honorably, that's a beautiful thing, and it's, it's a history we have. And the social license and the cultural support for that is actually eroding. And so this is a really important point. If it's for folks who maybe live in an urban area, have one tree or not, but what can you do? You're signaling that you get that forests matter, particularly in the emerging climate crisis. And now I think it's then paused and, and not run to, then let's draw a line around all the forests and leave them alone forever. Because that's not how we got here. And while that is a super cool and important piece of the puzzle, which we embrace and do at the department, it can't be the only strategy. So it seems to think about the economic imperative that people have and like, help support a local sawmill as opposed to fight a local sawmill. Smile and thank a logger for the hard work they do, the dangerous, difficult work, and mostly doing it in a really honorable way that contributes, keeps money locally, and it keeps forests for forest. us. So I just say support for the culture, our history and culture of forestry and stewardship of the landscape. We do it really well for farms more and more, Easy, put food in your body every day, and so like, yeah, let's protect and help those. We need that same love for the people who help us put air in our, and water in our bodies every day and provide myriad forest products that we take very much for granted in our daily lives. And rather than demand and expect that those are supplied from somewhere else on the planet where maybe they're not as connected, let's embrace doing it here locally and intelligently, keeping the money here, knowing the neighbor who's doing that work and knowing where the values are being added and doing so locally and meeting our needs here. And it sort of translates that with protection and active stewardship in a, in, a, in a forward-looking way, always striving to do it better and better. I think that's the package we're convinced is the strategy for keeping forest forest, keeping fall foliage on display every fall And kind of holding it together in a realistic way.
1: When people are out hiking or biking or just, you know, driving around and seeing the foliage this year, is there something in particular you want them to, you've talked about what you want them to think about, you know, in terms of the importance of forests in Vermont. Anything you hope they'll feel when they're out there seeing all this beauty around us?
0: Sure, a lot. I hope they feel lucky to be there. I hope they appreciate again and wonder maybe like, how did this... How is this so how did this happen? Why does it still look like this and not something very different? And kind of explore that and maybe you know have a sense of appreciation. I hope they feel positive. I hope they feel happy. It's happy Vermont, isn't it? I gotta get a it's a it's an obligatory happy Vermont reference. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean that's the idea. It's happy, it's a good, it's good. I hope they feel healthy or healthful that they're pursuing health. I hope they feel community. They're they're not alone, they're part of this. I hope they feel a sense of optimism that we can hold on to this and we can still get it right. And that here in good old happy Vermont, we're still getting it right. I mean, there's a lot, I hope they, and then I also hope they don't think too much, you know, I just hope they feel, they feel good. And then, you know, close the gates on the way out, wave, pick up your trash, be polite, help somebody out, thank a logger, thank a landowner, the log truck on the road, you know, appreciate what that means. Just like the manure spreader, you know, it comes with the territory that that creates so much beauty.
1: Thanks for listening to Happy Vermont. You can email me at hello at happyvermont.com or find Happy Vermont on Instagram or Facebook. You can also find Vermont stories plus Happy Vermont sweatshirts, t-shirts, and hats on my website, happyvermont.com. Thanks again for listening. Take care and talk to you soon.